0: and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. To episode 4 of our summer 2018 miniseries, Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians. Today we're going to chat about art adaptations, though I have a feeling I'm going rogue by using that term in regard to art. Here to help me talk about all things 19th century art is my friend, Dr. Anna Wager. Anna recently completed her PhD in art history at the University of Washington, and she works primarily on 19th century English and American art, especially work produced by women like embroidery and textiles and printing and book arts. Her dissertation is on arts and crafts communities and religious patronage, and I am so excited to have her on to chat today. I am very excited to be doing this. So from what I understand, uh, my knowledge of... Art history is woefully lacking but from what I understand the Victorian period is sort of split in half by broad periods of artistic production or artistic thinking. So from 1780 to 1850 we have a period of romanticism in art and then from 1848 to 1900 roughly a period of realism.
1: Um, Yeah, that's kind of, um, that's generally how it breaks down. And a lot of what we see happening in the Victorian period is sort of directly in response to um, the romanticism, the focus on kind of emotion and often um, portraiture. um, And though the sort of dealing with feelings um, in the earlier part of the 19th century, which is overstating it a little bit. But that in turn was a response to enlightenment thought and a push against rationalism. So the Victorian art is almost kind of a a swing back in some ways to to picking some of those themes back up.
0: Um, So before we really dive in and take a look at some specific examples of Victorian artistic production, let's do a little timeline. So around the world of 19th century art. In 1768, the Royal Academy of Arts was founded. In 1804, the Royal Society of
1: Painters in Watercolors was founded. In 1823, the Society of British Artists was founded. In 1848, the Pre Raphaelite Brotherhood is founded, and you may remember hearing more about that in the episode on Wilkie Collins. Yeah. Book.
0: From 1848 to 1849, Dante Gabriel Rossetti painted The Girlhood of Mary Virgin.
1: In 1849 to 50, John Everett Millais painted Christ in the House of His Parents.
0: From 1851 to 1852, Millais was painting Ophelia. In 1852, the South Kensington Museum was formed. Uh, and that later became the Victorian Albert Museum, which I'll be visiting soon, and you can hear more about it if you subscribe at $3 or higher on Patreon. Um, From uh, starting in 1863
1: to 1875, Julia Margaret Cameron starts producing photography. Um, She's one of the first renowned art photographers and really revolutionizes this new media.
0: In 1863, Dante Gabriel Rossetti paints Helen of Troy. Um, in the mid-1860s to
1: sort of the late 1880s, the genre of neoclassicism thrives in Victorian
0: art. In the late 1860s, George Frederick Watts of the Royal Academy paints Orpheus and Eurydice. In 1869, Simeon
1: Solomon paints Toilette of a Roman Lady. In 1883, Edward Burne Jones paints The Wheel of Fortune.
0: In 1886, William Holman Hunt begins The Lady of Shalott, which was not exhibited until 1905. Um, In
1: 1888, Lawrence Alma Tatama paints the roses of Heliogabalus. In
0: 1888, John William Waterhouse paints The Lady of Shalott. In 1894, Waterhouse paints Ophelia.
1: And right around 1900, Jesse Marion King paints Queen Guinevere.
0: Okay, so let's talk about some of these... I'm calling them adaptations. I don't know what they would actually be called. Some of these pieces,
1: yeah, um, I don't know if there's a better name for it. Actually, they're they're often responses to literary works, so I think adaptations actually kind of fit pretty well. At least from
0: a modern perspective, it yeah. seems to. I don't. They would certainly not have thought of it in that way mm-hmm. historically. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, I think we might start with
1: talking about the Lady of Shalott, which becomes this sort of. Um, Main kind of subgenre, interestingly, in in the Victorian period, and um, have have you talked about the poem on? Yes, the podcast we actually okay. read it and discussed
0: it at okay. length, and yeah, the perfect. episode that will air two before this. Yeah. Oh,
1: perfect. Okay, so um, the the sort of key moments that get picked out in artworks um, in the Victorian period are right when. Um, she looks out the window and sees Lancelot and and the mirror cracks. And so the out flew the web and floated wide. The mirror cracked from side to side. The curse has come upon me, cried the lady of Shalot. So there's a lot of dramatic tension inherent in that moment in particular. And kind of the best example of this particular scene is William Holman Hunt's painting, um, which he starts in 1886 and doesn't finish until 1905. And he's working on it on and off. It's huge for one thing. So it's a giant canvas. And Holman Hunt, um, throughout his long career, paints in a really detailed way. And so it takes him a long time to, to pay- produce his paintings generally. Um, and why this painting is so significant and why I wanted to start with it is because he's able to capture a lot of um, kind of motion and movement within the scene itself. And so you, the mirrors in the background. Um, and you can see the crack kind of going across it. And um, she's in the midst of weaving and like all of the threads surrounding her start weaving around her body and um, her hair is kind of flying everywhere. And it's just this scene of chaos. It's also this moment of dramatic tension, but it's not sort of the tragic heart of the poem, which comes later on when she leaves and goes out in the boat, right? Yes, and, yeah. um, and so that's sort of the other key moment um, that artists tend to focus on as well, particularly John William Waterhouse's Lady of Shalott from 1888. So that um, is a painting where she's kind of similarly has this sort of flowing red hair and is quite lovely and very um, sort of aesthetically pleasing and, and designed um, by these, I mean, it should be noted, male artists. Um, mm-hmm. And she's placed in this setting and is is getting ready to start this sort of tragic journey. and. Um, so those are kind of the two moments that get picked out from, um, from the poem, the sort of moment of crisis and then the the ending and it proliferates in the period, um, along with other images like that of Ophelia, um, Hamlet's doomed lover and this sort of connotation of, of women and water mm-hmm. and ways to depict
0: that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, it's a theme you... that gets picked up kind of multiple times. We mentioned that a little in the earlier episode and I think that it's really uh, the the artistic renderings of those moments really drives them home in the culture, I mm-hmm. think. Like the, the the pairing is there in the literature. Definitely. But it's not until we get the paintings that it's really that, that link is sort of concretized. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And once you sort of see Millet's Ophelia, it's hard to think of Ophelia in a different way, I think. Like that mm-hmm. painting is really powerful, um, and it sort of just immediately kind of, at least for, you know, I'm coming at this from obviously sort of the art side of things, but um, it just immediately links it now to me whenever I think of, of her or I yep. think of Hamlet generally. Yeah, and there's, I mean, I think... Um, some, I mean, there's, there's a decent amount of paintings, genre paintings. So genre paintings being these sort of moralizing works that are often referred to as pot boilers. So paintings that artists were producing to kind of feed their families and we Mm. tend to dismiss them now, but they can be really interesting artifacts for concerns that the Victorians had or themes that they were interested in. And there's a genre that develops in kind of the, the 1850s and 60s that are often just titled found or found drowned and it's women- kind of on the banks of the Thames, um, hmm. and it's this, again, very clear visual link between kind of women and water, and this concern yeah. about social welfare, and so I think that there's, like, that's in the public imagination at the time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so then when you place the Lady of Shalat in a boat, like, that's going to, there's going to be connotations for that beyond sort of yeah. Tennyson's poem as well.
0: Are there similar connections between women and mirrors in art? Because there certainly mm-hmm. are, especially in the later period, later Victorian period in, in literature.
1: There is a little bit. And um, actually the, uh, I think it's the National Gallery just did an exhibition solely devoted to the um, Van Eyck's The Arnolfini Wedding. Mm-hmm. So the, where there's that circular mirror in the back. Um, and, that painting had just am- entered their collection, I think in the 1840s. Um, and so it was something that per- the Peru afro had access to and the ways that the mirror in that specifically plays out in their works. Um, Holman Hunt in particular incorporates mirrors um, pretty regularly. There's some, I mean, kind of general connotations with I think like women in mirrors and vanity mm-hmm. a bit, but like not to the same extent that it would be in literature of the period,
0: I think. So there's this weird um, trope that emerges toward the end of the century in which women, um, particularly women who have allowed their um, angelic status to be compromised in some way, Mm. sit down in front of their mirrors and commit suicide. Oh, interesting. um, Which reminds me so much of Ophelia. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's just a a really interesting pattern, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and it's, um, for Millet's Ophelia in particular, like that painting is taken on such an apocryphal status because, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to contribute to it as well, but, um, the narrative of the model being Elizabeth Siddle, who, Mm -hmm. um, would then go on to marry Dante Gabriel Rossetti and, um, pass away at a fairly young age, uh, through ingesting laudanum, whether that was an intentional dose or not is, is not kind of clear, um, and when she was modeling for the painting for Millet, he like had her model in this basically bathtub that had um, heaters underneath it, candles, some sort of light apparatus. And again, the apocryphal story is that those um, lights gradually went out and he was so consumed by his artistic genius and painting that he didn't really check on her and she got quite sick because she was mm. in this cold water for um, for a long time. And so when you look at this painting... Um, which is, you know, she's in the water and it's, it's really quite graphic. Um, when you sort of stop and think about it, Mm -hmm. there's this connotation with her kind of real life modeling practice for it as well. Um, interesting. I hadn't
0: heard that. The story I always hear about Mm -hmm. her is that, um... Rossetti buried some of his poems with her and then later yes. kind of was like, hmm, I might want to publish those and had her exhumed and then yeah. <laughs> published the poetry. He does. Which is why. Indeed. Rosetti <laughs> is kind of a garbage person, even though his poetry is amazing.
1: Yeah, his book designs are really good, but as an interpersonal yeah. <laughs> person, maybe not so much. Um, but yeah, so like, and the Peripheralites in particular... In part because when they start in 1848, um, which is a year of kind of revolution spreading across Europe, um, they're caught up indirectly and and directly in this sort of revolutionary fervor. And they were all quite young, Mm -hmm. 18 or 19 years old, and um, they're rebelling against the Royal Academy. They're, you know writing manifestos about their feelings about art production they're um they're trying to shake things up in this very brash like young man kind of way um and so that that history and that sort of biography gets so attached to the works that it's sort of hard to to take it away and maybe we shouldn't because i think it is it's part of what's compelling about what they're doing i mean it often sometimes kind of overrides the actual art some of the time because it is such a compelling sort of series of stories um,
0: yes yeah
1: which can be tricky and like the their whole deal um, was painting truth to nature they were reading John Ruskin and um, wanting to turn to this the name pre-Raphaelite meaning art pre-Raphael or kind of Raphael going back Mm -hmm. um, and Doing these really detailed studies. So, um, if you look at that that painting of Millais' Ophelia, the the landscape surrounding her is really painstakingly painted, like individual blades of grass. He spent months outside, on this. Creek bed basically studying the the wildlife and incorporating all these symbolic flowers and like having this density of detail and everyone kind of the the core ones being Rossetti Millet and Holman hunt um, both Millet and Rossetti pretty quickly within about six ish years really stopped painting in that style because it is really, time-consuming, and Holman Hunt's the only one that kind of sticks with it. Um, so we talk about them as this unified group, but, like, they pretty rapidly change stylistically, and that often gets sort of lost because we're so used to kind of thinking about them as these figures and their biography and their relationships. But when you actually, like, go and look at the paintings from 10 years on, you wouldn't think there'd be any sort of connection mm. between them. That's
0: a really good point. I should uh, just pause and say that we have linked to the images we're discussing in the show notes so you yes. can look at them as you listen. Um, hopefully I think that would be the ideal way to yeah. consume this particular episode. Yeah, definitely.
1: And some um some platforms will have kind of zooming in capabilities to um kind of depending where you open them and that for some of the peraphylet stuff it is nice to be able to, to kind of yeah. get in close to the details too. Yeah.
0: I think the other thing about the pre-Raphaelites that um, is fascinating to me from a literature point of view is their focus on hair. Because the Victorians (laughs) were obsessed with hair, as I have probably mentioned a million times. Because I'm really amused and also sort of fascinated Mm -hmm. by their fascination. Um, And pre-Raphaelite paintings tend to have women with their hair down and long and flowing. Yeah. um...
1: In a way that actual Victorian women were not.
0: Right. Comporting themselves. Because that would have been very risque. Yeah. 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 And that
1: is like, that's something that's striking about both the Holman Hunt lady of Shalott and then the Waterhouse lady of Shalott is sort of the like auburn like flowing hair. And that's Elizabeth Siddle kind of um, also sort of notoriously or apocryphally had This sort of long auburn hair, and that's something that they pick up and use again in their paintings. And yeah, it's such a focus. Like, yeah, to
0: to revisit that apocryphal story, it's. uh, uh, I I really doubt. I mean, really, there's no scientific. Evidence that this could actually happen, but um apparently, when he, when Rosetti had her exhumed, mm-hmm. her hair had grown to such an extent that he freaked out about it. like <laughs> I forgot about that. I forgot that yeah. there's that hair element in that story. Yeah. Yeah. Just like taking that myth that your hair continues to grow after you mm-hmm. die to like those, the extreme. Yeah. yeah. Like it had filled the coffin and sort of like sprung out like tentacle like at him when he opened Mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: When it becomes like, um, you know, like saving a lock of hair being something that, you know, we still do sometimes (laughs) if it's like your child's first haircut Mm -hmm. or, you know, other sort of, um, kind of milestones, I think, but they would, um, they incorporated it into, um, grieving, Processes in particular, mm-hmm. and mourning culture—the the collection of of hair from the deceased, and then using that to make jewelry or wreaths or um, really elaborate, sometimes kind of decorative mm-hmm. pieces to then be um, either worn or you know kind of shown or displayed in the yeah. home as well.
0: I recently saw an article about—I don't remember who it was. I'll do some digging and see if I can find it and link it in the show notes, but. Um, Someone's daughter died and the parents uh, paid nuns to create Mm. this sort of, um, it's like a tree and a tombstone scene made out of her hair under a bell jar. Oh, interesting. Fascinating. And like all the coloring is done by um, gluing and cutting little tiny bits of her hair. Oh, wow. Um, So it's really shaded. It looks actually like something out of an Edward Corey illustration, Mm. but it's all like... Um, paper mache and mm. hair interesting yeah yeah
1: it's the whole kind of like bell jar inclusion I always find really interesting too like I know I don't know much about them at all but like the attempts to like I don't know protect something in, in yeah. having that and, and putting something under it especially when it's something like that something that's yeah. a morning object is that's really interesting
0: yeah, they had some really striking images of it. It's fascinating. So hopefully, mm-hmm. I can find it and like retrace the steps that brought me there on Victorian internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Victorian hair internet, yes. which there's lots. Uh-huh. So I think those are some good examples of Victorians adapting themselves. But mm-hmm. um, they also artistically adapted many different periods or literatures. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, absolutely. And I should also say so the. Um, this sort of pre association with Tennyson in particular um, gets taken up both in printing um, by folks like William Morris and also um, in the works themselves. And one of the things that, that pre-Raphaelites, um, in addition to sort of Disliking the Royal Academy and feeling like it was stultifying um, and, you know, forcing you to paint still lifes and things that they, they didn't think were important. They had these really strong opinions, of course, about um, kind of like the proper things to be um, subjects to be treated in artworks. And it basically boils down to biblical or historical scenes, um, Shakespeare and very select poets Tennyson being sort of one of the main ones. And so trying to move away from what they saw as a lot of uh, kind of society portraiture, they kind of unfairly really hated Sir Joshua Reynolds, who did all of these sort of aristocratic women, um, portraits of aristocratic women. They called him Sir Sloshua because they thought his brushwork was like too loose and um, (laughs) like a bunch of punks. But um, so that was one of the things that they were really trying to push was like, we're going to do more literary and sort of biblical historical subjects. And so they're sort of the initial works that they, um, we mentioned in the timeline, kind of the, the years in 1849 to 50, the, the th- kind of big works that come out from them are Rossetti painting The Girlhood of Mary Virgin, so a biblical scene, and then Millet painting Christ in the house of his parents. Um, so another biblical scene, um, and these works were not wildly popular at the time mm. either. Um, they, you know, were dismissive of the Royal Academy, but then were showing these works in the Royal Academy, so that was already going to be kind of a problem. Um, but
0: and the way they introduced themselves to the like Victorian. Um art world yeah. was just really kind of cryptic, right? Because they just mm-hmm. signed their yes. paintings, PRB. Yeah, and they had this like little... Like, lit. A secret society? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they actually, there's a, a group of, of German painters from uh, 1820-ish, I think. Um, the 1820s called the Nazarenes,
0: mm.
1: who had modeled themselves as this brotherhood. And um, I'm not sure if they actually used a sort of kind of cryptic signature in the same way, but, um, this idea of like, we're all banding together to do this and shake things up. And so the, the PRB was drawn to that too Mm -hmm. and kind of use them a little bit as a model for some of this, but yeah, it was like very kind of covert and, um, this statement, um, and people didn't quite know what to do with with some of that. Um, Millet had been sort of the darling of the Royal Academy, too. Like, he got in um, younger than the other ones, and so he was a little bit younger, and he was sort of widely considered to be the best student. Hmm. So I think they were particularly kind of annoyed when he, like, went rogue and did his own thing um, and sort of ditched them. And um, the Christ in the House of His Parents painting, which was his sort of kind of major foray, again, like a very large work, incredibly detailed. Um, The the general structure for it is, um, it's kind of like an M-shaped composition with the figures. So it's like your eye travels through it in a, like a pretty um, regimented way. But if you're Mm. used to looking at sort of, you know, think of like a Renaissance painting, like a Michelangelo or something, like the the way that he's he doesn't have a sort of clear hierarchy of like foreground middle ground and background Mm -hmm. like it's not entirely sure where your eye is supposed to be going and um there's also just like i think people were kind of wary about the fact that everything is detailed um Mm -hmm. that you have these wood shavings because they're in you know joseph's carpenter shop so Mm -hmm. the the ground is you know riddled with these wood shavings and um, Christ is not sort of standing out as this supernatural being in it as well, yeah. which I think was a was a concern. Um, you're used to seeing him as sort of set apart from his kind of mortal family as well. Um, also, just as a note, that there's a, in the upper left corner, you can kind of see out the the door into the pasture behind it, and there's um, a bunch of sheep out there, and Malay actually, like, went to the butchers and, like, drew from these sheep heads that they had there so like there's like the Hmm. level of detail that he's willing to put into this is like going out and finding like these bodies or or objects when um like wherever he can get them in london wow um which is a a level of commitment that is kind of gross (laughs) Um, but also interesting (laughs) like
0: smelled horribly so bad yeah
1: Yeah. (laughs) um yeah, so like this painting is just—it just looks different than than mm. works that were coming before it, and it's not that often when you can kind of pick out a work and sort of distinctly say like there's something about this that is new. Um, but this was kind of one of the ones that was,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and the reviews were not especially kind. Um, Charles Dickens actually really disliked it. Um, and wrote a scathing review about it and described Christ as blubbering because he's like, he's pricked his hand. And so um, his mother's comforting him and and Joseph is looking at his hand. And it's sort of, um, you know, suggests the stigmata that will come later on in life. But Dickens was just kind of like, he's just this crying boy. <laughs> and Like it was not... Not a fan. Yeah, because
0: at this point the Victorian sort of move away from sentimental masculinity was Mm -hmm. in full swing. Like early nineteen early eighteen hundreds, it was actually a mark of your taste and class status if you were a man who cried and was affected by nature and the sublime. Mm -hmm. Um but then as the Victorian period took on steam, um, the sort of muscular masculinity, step upper lip kind of thing we're more familiar with really takes hold. And um in a lot of the same ways we have toxic masculinity now mm-hmm. as like emotional boyhood or manhood were really frowned upon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even like the idea of muscular Christianity as a movement mm-hmm. Later on in the century, the idea of um, the church militant and like pushing for religion as this very sort of masculine converting kind of force, um, which I think is in response to just a variety of things happening earlier in the mm-hmm. century with, mm-hmm. um, with religion and with um, kind of the increasing what was viewed as a threat by many Victorians of um, Anglo-Catholicism, or high church Anglicanism. So a way Mm -hmm. for for Protestants to kind of react against that by by pushing for this sort of muscular, masculine kind of Christianity as well.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a little bit rooted in also the rise of Methodism or the popularization Mm -hmm. of Methodism, which was really um, connected to the working classes. Mm -hmm. And men in the working classes were more muscular than uh, um, the aristocrats or... um, uh, even like upper middle class men who wanted their bodies not to show signs of labor as sort of a visual reminder to everyone that they were well-to-do enough that they didn't have to do labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And one of the things that um, is sort of noticeable, I think, in the um, Christ in the House of His Parents by Millet is that the um, he was working for models and um, the... Like if you look at Joseph and his um, his arms and sort of general body, like he's very he's clearly working class. Mm-hmm. Um, not only because like he actually is fairly muscular, but the um, the skin tone from his hands up to his arms um, shifts, so mm-hmm. suggesting that he's doing um, some labor outside because his hands are, are darker and have been exposed more to the sun. Um, and so the fact that Millet is is kind of pulling from. Um, often working class models modeling was not an especially socially acceptable thing to be doing it's kind Mm of about on par with being an actress for a woman um a little bit worse actually sometimes and so the implication often with models um whether true or not and often it it wasn't true but the implication was there was that it was you know linked to prostitution in some way as well um yeah so like pulling You know, he's not painting society women. He's painting working class people in Mm -hmm. these guises. And this is the same sort of criticism that gets leveled actually at like Caravaggio a couple centuries before because he was also painting from, you know, working class models. There's a similar thing where they have tan lines Mm -hmm. and... you know, dirty feet, and he's, like, rendering all of that, um, which to us now is is kind of amazing to look at. Yeah. But at the time, people were like, how dare you depict the Virgin Mary like a normal person, you know? <laughs> and not only a normal person, but a poor person, mm-hmm. um, which biblically actually is pretty fitting. Yeah, but, accurate. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, but, but not something that a lot of the Victorians were – interested in thinking about um dickens actually describes um mary here as so horrible in her ugliness that um she would stand out from the rest of the company as a monster in the vilest cabaret in france or in the lowest gin shop in england so like explicitly sort of mentioning like this woman is unattractive and her class kind of uh, being a connotation there as well She's dickens, dickens expect better from you (laughs) um but yeah and i think that's also like the um kind of art criticism at the time is often like very pointed in ways that um not that it's not now but there's so much writing about these works and a lot of it is like is very strong feelings kind of (laughs) on both sides Mm -hmm. of
0: it literary criticism was the same (laughs) um it really sold newspapers right yeah to, to be cutting what did they call it i can't remember starts with an S. I'm not gonna be able to, to remember <laughs> um, George Eliot has a term for it which she talks about why she hated journalism and it was that she had to do these scathing reviews about mm. it. although she like took delight in writing scathing reviews about Mary Elizabeth Braddon um, for oh. example yeah yeah I think it's because they actually had such um, parallel personal mm. lives um, that she really wanted to
1: kind of distance herself um, yeah
0: interesting. Um, but I'm just, back. Back. yeah, yeah, <laughs> rabbit trail. <laughs>
1: no, always happy to talk about Brad. <laughs> um, and so, kind of the like the big art critic, and so many other things was John Ruskin. And um, you know, by rights, we should maybe have have started talking about him, but he gets a lot of limelight so I'm always happy to kind of start with other things and and work back to him um because it all comes back to Ruskin but um Mm. Ruskin as an art critic and sort of really like cultural voice at the time um is one of the first positive reviews of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood um and that allows them to effectively get patronage initially when they maybe wouldn't have otherwise um because his voice does carry so much weight. Mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. um, yeah, just as kind of the, you know, he becomes the Slade professor of art at Oxford. and so this very kind of upper class like legitimizing force mm-hmm. for them, um, which again, like they're very young, they're they're pushing out of the academy, like they need someone to kind of jump in and yeah and help, and he does. Um,
0: Ruskin's whole kind of philosophy, I think, if I'm not confusing him with Morris, which I often do because Morris is so <laughs> really closely. Ruskin, yeah, okay. um, all- that yeah. is that um, beauty is morality, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So if something is beautiful, then it's there for good, which is yes. actually a very popular idea in the Victorian mm-hmm. period. Yeah. And
1: for, for Ruskin and then later for people like William Morris, who, who basically forms the arts and crafts movement, um, the most beautiful works are those that are made by hand. Mm. Um, and so Ruskin has a, a great sort of phrase about, um, like beautiful works being imperfect works, um, as a response against sort of increasing industrialized production of furniture and tapestries and, um, even wallpaper to a certain extent, um. So the idea of, of beauty having this sort of moral component, mm-hmm. um, and one that was tied to human making, um, is really central for him. And then something that, that other authors and artists kind of take up as it goes on. Ruskin was also, um, he believed that the Gothic period, um, was the sort of peak of artistic production. Mm-hmm. And so in the nature of the Gothic and in, um, the stones of Venice in particular, he, you know, is walking around and sort of talking about, like, why this um, Renaissance architecture is terrible and associates the Gothic, again, specifically with, like, human crafting and working in guilds and being communal. And it's this very rosy vision of the medieval period that, like, mm-hmm. leaves out a lot of, yes like, pain and disease and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, but for him, it's, like, it's totally tied to this, this kind of communal aspect. which I think also relates to the idea of the Pre-Raphaelites as a brotherhood, too. Um, and putting sort of that, you know, those initials, the PRB, on their works. Like, it's, it's again, this sort of pseudo-guild. Yes. Yeah. To, yeah. So again, just bring up slight Pre-Raphaelite drama. Um, Millet was Ruskin's favorite. Ruskin thought his work was the best. Um, and he did kind of have the most innate artistic st- skill, um, he ends up going on a trip with Ruskin and his wife Effie up to Scotland, and he does this this portrait of Ruskin standing on the bed of this, it's like a waterfall, and um, he and Millet and um, Ruskin's wife Effie end up spending quite a bit of time together on this trip. And they, when Ruskin and Effie divorce, Effie then marries Millet, yes. um, and yeah. so after that point, like if Ruskin is not such a supporter of of Millet, and ends up mm-hmm. kind of becoming closer
0: to Rosetti. It's funny, this keeps books. coming up in, in all of our um, <laughs> miniseries episodes so far, so yeah. uh, the subtitle for this miniseries is Pre-Raphaelite's Brotherhood Scandals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many of them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, it's like the Victorian um, real housewives. Kind it kind of, of you know. is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, all like,
1: I don't know, intermarrying each other and dating each other and just
0: nonsense. This is a good stopping point. Dr. Wager and I will be back next week to conclude our conversation about Victorian artists and the Pre-Raphaelites and all things 19th century art adaptation. Thanks for listening. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dunville. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us.
1: After the ball, come by Mr. John Jay A little maiden an old man's
0: for this podcast is courtesy of muse open and free music archive under creative commons attribution licenses
1: our theme is joseph miroslav weber's string quartet number no. two in b minor performed by steve's bedroom band the music for our around the world feature is puddington bear's Rio, and our closing music is george j gaskin's 1893 performance of after the ball after